Thank you. Thank you, Zubia. It's a great pleasure and honor to be uh, speaking in this particular forum. As you know, I was um, uh, quite re reluctant or hesitant because I was really hesitant to talk to a community of historians since I, I'm not a historian in any measure of the term. But, um, you know, I was encouraged by the fact that you were open to looking at questions around the theme of history from different disciplines. So I have foolishly or bravely jumped into this and um, let's see in the end of it, uh, you know, how foolish I have been. Um, I want to take this opportunity to share some thoughts on uh, work that I've been doing for quite some time on trying to understand the nature of society and in particular, uh, the work and my with my collaborator, Professor Gopal Guru, with whom uh, we have written uh, two books on this particular topic. Um, let me try and relate it to the question of history, which was always at the back of the work, which I we now in all our thinking about the idea of the social and society. Although we did not focus particularly on the concept of history, what struck us was that in all our engagement with so many communities around the country and at different points of time, there was always an incipient historical consciousness present in people. And that is nothing new. But what was interesting is the way in which this historical consciousness shaped their social imagination. So I'm going to speak just on that specific topic here. Uh, I know there's been a huge amount of work in history dealing with the relationship with larger questions of sociology and history um, and of accounts of ordinary people. But I want to use that term to really engage with this question of our history, a term which repeatedly we encountered. We and I repeatedly encountered today when I talk to communities and individuals in their invocation of an idea of our history, something that belongs to them. So then I want to ask the question, what is this history that they think belongs to them? What is the sense of belongingness that one develops with the idea of history? So uh, it's going to be a very esoteric um, kind of a reflection on this. Uh, but I, I, I welcome you know, critical comments and suggestions at the end of my talk. So it's, it's a long paper. I'm not going to read the paper in full, but I'm going to try and highlight some of the points um, uh, which is which are present in this in this particular paper. So let me begin with our uh, with trying to make sense of this idea of our history. So in this talk, I'll attempt to make sense of a phenomenon that I see all the time and across the country, which is the way common people conceptualize and articulate their sense and experience of history. What I mean by their accounts of history about themselves and the communities is not history that is validated according to the tenets of history as a discipline. Nevertheless, it is a sense of history in that it deals primarily with the past, with accounts of events, with chronology and other elements that are also of interest to the discipline of history. Whenever such self-accounts of history conflict with the professional historian, they're often dismissed. Interestingly, both sides uh, of, the, of, of the debate, I mean, in the debate, dismiss each other. History, as we know well, has become a primary site of contention in public discourse and has particularly dangerous political consequences in the India of today. However, my aim in what I'm going to speak today is not to engage with this political debate, which I'm sure most of you are already well versed with, but to understand the implications of the self accounts of history for a philosophy of history. So what little competence I would have to speak about this is going to be around the idea of philosophy of history, certain philosophical questions around this thing, this activity called history. I'm also convinced that such an exploration is absolutely essential when we engage with South Asian cultures and perhaps other contiguous cultures in Asia and Africa. I do find it problematical that intellectual practices from these cultures do not become part of the theoretical and philosophical discussions about history. How much of the historical reflection on South Asia actually draws upon the conceptual categories of the many traditions ranging from the mainstream to the subaltern in order to understand the processes, the conceptual foundations and the philosophies of their own histories? How is it possible to understand the enormous production of work 
on conceptual foundations of history with comparatively insignificant philosophical and conceptual basis from non-Western traditions. What are the challenges such a view raises for the discipline of history itself? Gopal Guru, uh, my colleague and uh, my collaborator in our work, who is also there with us today, famously used a phrase to quote him, theoretical Brahmins and empirical Shudras, in order to highlight the problem of reducing the Dalits to pure empirical subjects who did not have the capacity to theorize about their own lives. In the same way, one can ask whether most parts of Asia and Africa continue to remain purely empirical subjects who do not have the capacity or the vocabulary to produce theoretical reflection to eliminate their own condition. If not their own condition, if not that of others in the West. While I will not deal with this debate directly, this theme hovers in the background of my talk as I will explore the absence of drawing upon lived experiences of histories from communities in India in a global philosophical reflections on history. Many of the articulations that describe the various communities and groups in India have a self-description of the histories of themselves. It is a history that's often articulated as our history, a history which they identify with and a history that causally influences how they perceive the present and act towards the future. It's produced in caste narratives. Every subcaste produces caste narratives of this kind. Um, it is part of everyday talk of various religious sects. It's integral to the identities which different groups form politically and socially. This history is replete with events, with personalities, with chronologies of what happened, when and to whom. It's also closely related to their everyday practice and it's not just an intellectual position which they take. Very often they differ from the history of the historians. One common difference of course is the correct dating of events and the time in which somebody lived. And many times our histories, and I'm going to keep using the word our histories, and uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, when I'm writing it, I put R in uh, quotes, but I'll just, when I'm speaking, whenever I invoke our histories, I'm not talking about R in the sense of I belong, you know, my belongingness to history, but this category called our histories, people's history, a history which creates a sense of belongingness within communities. So we know that many of these R histories are exaggerated sense of time frames. However, I have often found it's impossible to try and engage them in a critique of the, the, this idea of numbers for time, for example, or reducing number to timelines. This is a point which is worth discussing in great detail since it connects to the ontology of time to that of mathematics, but I shall not do that here. There is also a mismatch of vocabulary since the description of our history invokes concepts that do not occur in the modernized academic discourse of history. So my focus in this talk is not whether these accounts should be seen as historical or whether they should be located in the domains of myth and fiction or as has increasingly been invoked in the domain of political ideologies. I'm more interested in the process of this, this particular sociality, this particular process of a group of people coming together as a group by invoking the idea of history. There are two major themes in this formation of our histories. First, we recognize that the group formation always seems to produce our histories, as, as I just explained, Puranic writing of caste communities, uh, continuing everyday practice as it was practiced hundreds of years ago, etc. In a part of it is also to represent the past with more what I call force of presence, making the past quote unquote more present. This leads us to inquire into the relation between the histories and the formation of the social group around these histories. What is it about history that catalyzes this coming together, that provokes an idea of we-ness, that makes them articulate what they see as our history? What is it about social formation that makes it seem as if historical accounts are essential to the formation of a social? Equivalently, given the close connection between the historical and social, how do we talk about the sociality of history like we would talk about socialities of various group formation, like that of caste, class, gender, and religion? On the other hand, we also recognize that the social needs history, historical narratives, historical ontologies. So the my first part of my talk will try and address part of some of these concerns. Secondly, one of the striking features of our history is its hyper-reality. And it's a hyper-reality of the past. In our histories, the past becomes far more real and present than when it is filtered through the goals and aims of academic history. This hyper-reality of the past makes artifacts and people of the past take on a greater than real presence in today's world. 
This presence has causal influences in the contemporary social, as we see in the politics of today. It has significant effect on individuals and families, many times in their day-to-day lives. What interests me about this hyper-realism are insights into the ontology of history, particularly the ontological status of the past. In particular, this ontology of the past, exemplified in our histories, show a deep and intriguing relation with touch, maybe asking us to take more seriously the phenomenological experience of, quote, touching the past and touching history. The complexity of touch has a deep relationship to the structures of Indian society, and we can draw upon this to understand the everyday possibility of touching the past. There is a common sense of touching objects of history in our daily lives. People's descriptions of individual and community histories often talk about historical terms and historical artifact as if they are sensorially accessible. History arises in this domain, not as a set of intangible facts or knowledge claims, but as a sensorium that is most dominantly influenced by the sense of touch. To understand this, we have to, of course, start with the assumption that what sets societies apart is their metaphysics, the cultural philosophies that underlies their beliefs and practices. And it is not a, it is not an accident and surprising that touch plays such an important role here, because one of the most important complex metaphysical category that underlies Indian experiences is the concept of touch, a theme which we explore in great detail with Gopal Guru and myself in our uh, first book, The Cracked Mirror. So the formation of self-knowledge about communities is not special to history. Late descriptions of social phenomena also show similar practices. The way people talk about religion and caste, for example, can be quite different from the approach in uh, disciplines such as religious studies or sociology. People's self-understanding of caste very often has completely different narratives to sociological uh, descriptions. In, uh, it is, it is true that as lay people, we do not possess the expert knowledge. In, in, and you can look at analogies in various dimensions. But the, 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 the passing point I want to make here is that um, history too is like this. Historians have expert knowledge, but the products of history, the experience of historical processes, and the use of our history in our daily lives is uh, similar to what we do in the other domains. And I think it's a, a term which I would like to use here, just in passing, it's not substantial to anything which I'm going to say, is, uh, is what I would call as Jugard history. You know, a very famous term in the Indian context, uh, which uh, in a, if you want to find a post-structuralist term, a term which is very used, very popular in the post-structuralist uh, discourse, is bricolore, history as a bricolage. And uh, the Jugard history, which characterizes what we see as many aspects of the doing within Indian societies, um, uh, suggests that history is also done in this particular way. So a lot of it, and the reason why I want to set the problem up this way is because a lot of it goes back to a very fundamental question in the philosophy of history, which is the, the problematic claim about the ontologies of history, what kind of objects, entities that history talks about, and what kind of commitment, what kind of ontological commitment do you want to make to terms that are talked about in history, that are the objects of discourse in history? What kind of ontological commitment? So um, let me introduce this as, a, as the way in which I want to understand this particular relationship between the historical and the sociological. So the question of history in varieties of history, such as social history, cultural history, subaltern history, has been a point of contention, as I'm sure all of you know very well. In the context of articulations of our history, this question is really the crux of the problem. And the question is, what is the history in our history? You could like the question which was posed, what is the history in social history, for example? There is no easy answer primarily because the definition of history has itself so become so fractured into so many types of histories. In particular, the confusion regarding history and social history leads to questions about the goals, methods, as well as the nature of history. As Gertrude Himmelfarb in a paper in the American Historical Review notes, the proliferation of the varieties of new history has led to basic questions on the historical nature of these histories. She agrees with suggestions that, quote, more history has to be put into social history, end quote. A crucial lack in these new histories was the lack of what she calls central themes, frameworks, and significant questions. One of the points of recovery of traditional ideas of history in the face of these new history, including deconstruction of history, is to go back to certain foundational themes in history. Himmelfar points out 
that historians of different colors have rarely disputed the reality of historical past. So um, this phrase which she uses to quote her, the, the rarely disputed the reality of the historical, historical past becomes the core element which one can hold on to. Even in the past is a matter of dispute, of imperfect description, that nevertheless, there's a task of history was a serious engagement with the past and attempts to respond to these imperfections. But she argues that new historians make the past, quote, more indeterminate, more elusive, less real than it has ever been, end quote, leading to new possibilities of history. So the notion of our history that I'm using here is not really about these questions of new histories. It's a history of groups that claim a sense of history as an essential part of the socialities. Interestingly, its thematic structure is not very different from the themes of traditional history. In particular, the notion of the past is extremely important in this. And it is not a past that is, to use the words of Himal Fab, more indeterminate, more elusive, less real. But in contrast, is a past that is hyper-determinate, absolutely real, and graspable concretely. The ontology that underlies our history is actually a more robust version of the ontology that characterizes traditional historical questions. But where there is significant difference is the methods and the uses to which this ontology is put. And I find uh, a very uh, useful way to enter into this discussion and to lead it into the questions which I'm posing for trying to make sense of history in the South Asian context or the Indian context uh, is through um, a, a paper which I found very useful by a British historian, Michael Bentley. A British historian, Michael Bentley, in his paper, Past and Presence, Revisiting Historical Ontology, Published in History and Theory, points out that the developments in history over the last 30 years, and he's writing this in uh, it's published in 2006, um, that the developments in history of the past 30 years has moved away attention from the nature of the past, which has become diffused and subject to what he calls imagination and aesthetic whim. He also isolates a particular reason, that of the spatialization of time, which he believes I think you're muted. Yeah, I, um, we can't seem to hear you. The name that the past is never present, but neither is it an absence. And the basic thrust of his argument is that the past, present, and future are entwined, intertwined, and he uses the term chronotype to describe to quote him, conceptual environment that governs the modes, end quote, by which this interrelation is conceived. So basically, he's trying to find a way which um, moves away from uh, ideas that past is, uh, is a fictional, is creation, it is idealistic, or uh, the kind of a mental creation, or that it is even more passive in nature. So while Bentley agrees that as historians, it was important to be critical of the notion that quote, a bit of the past is still in the present, end quote. He also argues that at the same time, it's important to not ignore the ontology of the past in all its complexity. Instead, he says, scientific modernism became the guiding principle for history in the early parts of the 20th century. And post 1970s under the era of post-structuralism, Bentley notes that with the work of uh, Barthes, uh, Foucault, and Hayden White, although they had important things to say about epistemology, they quote, took away, took the past away altogether, end quote. And this, uh, uh, he also perceptively notes that this movement banished, in his words, banished the past into nothingness with no power to affect its futures. And, uh, and therefore leads to a focus on questions of memory and narratives when they, which become privileged. The problem, as Bentley rightly points out, is not about the past or the reality of time, but of the lack of engagement with more complex ontologies. Much of the rejection of the past was based on naive realism of the past and time and the nature of time. But in the mid 90s, Bentley suggests there was a new chronotype that emerges that reformulates the relation between past and presence and moves towards, to quote in his words, authenticity as a way of enhancing presence without ditching epistemology, end quote. Now, he formulates this question of authenticity, which is different from the traditional forms related to truth claims. But uh, I want to uh, take this further and you know, take this seriously to place this, uh, these kinds of questions in the context of the social 
which I, which I was talking to you about earlier. Bentley's observations have to be supplemented with ideas of ontology and theories of time from other cultural traditions and not just the Anglo-European one. While this would be necessary for a proper philosophical study of history, I think it's far more urgent and necessary for those who write on South Asian history and in general the histories of the non-West. Otherwise, there is a danger that they reproduce and impose the conceptual ontological structures of dominant philosophical Western philosophical traditions on ideas and practices that are sometimes radically incommensurable. So what I'm going to do in the remaining part of my talk is to offer another set of arguments from the lived experience of the everyday social to do what Bentley is doing, namely recover some possibility of the ontologies of past and time one that is drawn from empirical experiences of India, but one which I would argue is common across many parts of Asia. There is a specific problem, and this is a problem which is worthwhile keeping in the back of our mind, because I'm sorry, we, I think we've lost the audio again. From the analogy with philosophy of mathematics and similar to the analogy with the Descartian distinction between body and mind, we can ask the following. And this is a question which is, uh, which is famously known as uh, Benesserov's problem in philosophy of mathematics. And the problem is very simple. If mathematical entities are non-spatio-temporal, how is it that human beings, as spatio-temporal beings, can ever have knowledge about them? In the context of uh, nature, as and, and the context of the Descartian distinction, of course, that the body and mind are uh, two different kinds of substances, which relates, which raises the question: How can you ever have communication between each? Past, that the past can never communicate or relate to the present since they are of fundamentally different nature. So, even if. Sorry, uh, you couldn't hear me? Yeah, we, we lost um, just, I think, the past minute or so. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I. Um, yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah, so Mosimpur. Mosimpur. Hey, Papa. Um, can I go ahead? Yes, yes, please. Yeah. Sorry. So, um, yeah, so this is a larger question about um, the, you know, how does one even uh, relate to this ontological thing called the past? And that's part of the problem in trying to make sense of what does past mean and what does time mean in the context of history. So, uh, but we also have to recognize to, to underline the reason why it is useful to draw upon the various intellectual traditions and the philosophical and the various forms of thinking traditions present in Asian and African societies is that uh, for example, this problem with understanding the past and engaging with the past have very different uh, philosophical foundations. For example, just to give you a very brief example, we can talk about it later, that if you look at you know, almost all the Indian philosophical traditions, they do not distinguish body and mind as Descartes did. And thus the connection between different kinds of substances does not arise. In a similar manner, the past and present are not distinguishable completely and there remains a constant accessible link between them. I mean, this is, these are ways of developing questions of what does it mean to access the past and what is what is a realist ontology of the past? How, uh, how does it matter to the question of history today? Now, there are two answers about the reality of the past and connection to history, which I will suggest here. The first is from the nature of the present. The present is what is experienced, what is sensorially available. Present is nothing but the richness of sensations. We smell, touch, hear, taste, and see the present. This offers a simple but paradoxical clue to the past. To show a connection between past and the present is to show the possibility of the past being accessed sensorially. I mean, this might sound 
absurd when you when we first encounter this but this is really the task of uh, you know of, of, of this is my task of showing you how one thinks through this particular claim the rejection of the ontological past and not its material remnants is also based on it being completely outside our sensorial world what i'll argue is that there is a need to take the past seriously since there is a mode of sensorial access to it i add a second argument to strengthen this claim it is that the very possibility of the social is dependent on an ontology of the past and of history in this traditional sense the idea of the social is impossible without a commitment to an ontology of the past and of time the social is produced by the sensorial engagement with the past and the social in turn produces our relation with the past so both at the levels of sensations and experience the past is available both sensorially and as well as in our experience of the social i will argue that this is a phenomena that is very clearly reflected in the formation of the everyday socials of societies like india so um what i've tried to set up here is to try and see how is the past recovered in the way our histories are constructed why is it that the past is referred to and engaged with and um, manipulated um, and you know relived represented in so many ways uh, as if there is a very deep commitment to an ontology of the past and one way to understand it is to go back to what bentley had mentioned and i'll just say a little bit about this without taking uh, too much time uh, bentley identifies the specialization of the past the specialization of the past as a problem that plagues ontology of time in history however the specialization seems to be an intrinsic feature of human cognition this does not mean that the problems of describing time in the language of space which is what specialization really amounts to the we tend to describe time in the language of space so this does not mean that the problems of describing time in the language of space is insurmountable what we need to do is to understand what exactly the specialization amounts to in the context of time and the past there are two important processes one understanding and describing time through various kinds of specializations and two the creation of a sense of time within cultures and this really creates a conflict between our history and um, academic history in some sense first of all uh, what is common between our history and historian's history is that both have a problem in conceptualizing time and this is a fundamental problem of human cognition as i mentioned earlier because the argument that time is most often conceptualized as spatial metaphors is one way to understand about spatialization of time and what this means is we tend to talk about time more in the way we talk about space our awareness and discourse about time is often through the imagery of space now um this is the implications not of time per se of, but of what we mean by the past what we mean by spatial metaphors is that if you ask somebody to say something about time the way they will do so will in general draw on images and vocabulary of space and this we know from the influential work of george lakoff and mark johnson on conceptual metaphors and the way spatial metaphors are used to talk about time for example a very common example uh, two holidays can be described as being close together so even though holidays are separated by time they are referred to as if they are spatially close we talk about deadlines as rapidly approaching we look forward to a brighter tomorrow troubles lie behind us etc so the way we experience time influences the way we talk about the past and future and one of the ways we talk about the past is typically we talk as if the past is behind us and the future is ahead of us and we tend to gesturally point to the future and the past by spatially pointing ahead of us for future and pointing behind our back for the past however common these gestures may be they are representative of only one particular conceptualization of the future and past you could even call this a modernist conception of time Rafael Nunes a well-known cognitive scientist gives the example of talking to some people at the hillside in the Yupno valley a remote nook high up in the mountains of Papua New Guinea he asks them to talk about the past and future and as he is interviewing them they are using gestures to talk about the past and future a person they were interviewing um was making the kind of gestures which we are used to as uh, Nunes explains that is uh, when that person uttered yesterday his hands went backward and when he mentioned tomorrow it leapt forward so nunes and his team were taping him 
And then they changed the camera angle since the light faded. And in doing so, they discovered that they were looking at a steep slope, which is pointed towards a jagged bridge. And when they asked the same question about yesterday and tomorrow, Nunes reports that, quote, now when he talked about yesterday, he gestured forward, not backward. And he, as he explained tomorrow, he gestured back over his shoulder up towards the ridge. And what is interesting about this point is actually very, it's a lovely set of examples which have been uh, produced in this work in cognitive science in our uh, cognition of time and space. The importance of this observation is that the idea of past and future are not universal. And what's, what he points out is the future for this person and his community was not something that is defined as being in front of you. So what that person was doing was actually pointing to something uphill. And when he was pointing uh, uh, to, he was actually. Um, I think we've we've lost the audio again. Uh, gestures of for forward, so. Um, he was not talking about forward as something in front of him as something uh, behind him, but it's actually in reference uh, to the question of the mountain that he has to climb. So the, now the interesting point is that the con community's conception of time is uh, anchored in the contours of the world. And that changes very drastically the way one understands time and in terms of past and future, and therefore questions which are fundamental to the idea of history. Languages which talk about the past and future have an important role in defining what the past and future can be. So the belief there is an access to the past and the future, independent of the linguistic structure that you have, should be understood more carefully. For example, uh, typically in English, we say that the past is behind and the future is in front. And if you and cognitive, according to some cognitive scientists, the basis of that is a walking metaphor. You walk to the front, you move towards something. And there's nothing obvious about time or the past or future in these cultural practices. For the Aymara, a South American tribe, past is in front and future is behind. And the reason is that you know what is in front of you. And since you know what is in front of you, it's like perception. If I see something in front of me, I know it is there. And what the Aymaras are saying is that the past is the one which I can see. It is in front of me because I do not see future, which is therefore is um, one which is lost behind. Whatever the theoretical structure of future, one simple fact seems to be that future is a domain which we do not know anything about. And this, the, so the image of having the future in front does not make sense to the Aymaras because for them, what is in front is what is known. And it is a past which is actually known to us. And there are various other interesting examples. And I just end with a very short one here. Even writing systems influence our ideas of past and the future. And um, for example, in English, the past is often left, uh, represented as leftward and the future as rightward. And the argument has been that it is because we write from left to right. In Urdu or in Hebrew, the past is rightward and future is leftward because they're written in the opposite direction. In Mandarin, past is above and future is below. And so there are all kinds of ways of talking about the past. Now, one might question the importance of these practices. It might just seem like linguistic practices of, uh, you know, kind of reference to certain kinds of ideas which are present in the mind. But I'll give an interesting example to show how much these linguistic practices of writing actually influence our historical consciousness. An experiment, um, a, a well-known experiment illustrates this. Uh, when asked to arrange three temporarily ordered images, that is a banana with its peel intact and a half peeled banana, and a banana half eaten. Okay, so you have a full banana, then one in which the peel is removed half, and the third one in which half of the banana has been eaten. And when you ask people to uh, order them, it was found that English language speakers lay the three objects in an order from left to right in the following manner. First unpeeled banana, then the half peeled banana, and then the half eaten banana in the last. So you can see how the there is a kind of an ordering of a particular process, of a temporal process, which is represented in the way you are, you keep them spatially. Now, very interestingly in this experiment, and 
uh, I don't know how robust this experiment is or what are the kinds of variations one could do on this. However, they found Hebrew speakers lay them out from left, right to left in exactly the opposite uh, order. For English speakers, the order of the objects is the direction of time as moving towards the future, whereas it is the reverse for Hebrew speakers. Now, such modes of spatialization is very common. But what is special to this process in the context of history? So the, the Bentley's point that spatialization of time is a problem um, is, is true across, you know, it's, it's, it's a very common problem of human, not a problem, it's part of, uh, it's a problem of common feature of human cognition. But what is special to this process in the context of history? Now, one of, I, I think, you know, the answer I'm going to give here, which might be, um, you know, which probably needs, um, you know, a lot more argument than I can give in the remaining few minutes, is that the past and time in history become spatialized into the social. The spatialization is not just about the kind of linguistic examples we saw or the reference to the world as we saw uh, with the tribal pointing to the uh, uh, hill, but the past and time in history become spatialized into the social. The past and time of our histories become spatialized into the everyday social of these groups. To make sense of this claim, we need to have an account of what I mean by the everyday social and how it is special to different societies. So what I will do in the remaining few minutes is to briefly describe the work by Gopal Guru and myself described in our new book, Experience Cast on the Everyday Social. Well, not so new uh, since it appeared in 2019. There we formulate a model of social ontology, one that attempts to capture the uniqueness of Asian and African societies. And an important aspect of our formulation is that the social is not just an abstract term in a sense like the past, but one uh, that is sensorially experienced. We consider the many examples, the, through many examples, the nature of the formation of the groups and the experience of Venus. How do groups come together? How are socialities of different people, uh, how are they formed? And what is the relationship between the conceptual term social and this particular human process? Both these points were the everyday social, the experiential aspect of abstract terms, as well as the creation of Venus, are relevant for the questions I began with. What is the sense of we that is present when we use the term our history? How do histories bring a sense of belongingness in a group of people? To make it more specific, how do notions of time and the past, and why do notions of time and the past, produce the sense of Venus of belonging together? And does our approach to the ontology of the social give us a framework to understand how we sensorially access the past or at least talk as if it is a real experience? So um, let me begin with a simple characterization of the everyday social as we describe in our book. So uh, a few parts of what I'm saying here is extracted from our book and there is a lot more, um, you know, um, much longer discussion as well as many, many more examples to illustrate what we are trying to say. So I'm just going to use one example of that to show you how our notions of, um, you know, re responding sensorially to the abstract are often formed in very interesting ways. So uh, what we discuss, uh, describe is this, the everyday social, and we, by that we begin with a very non-technical definition. It consists of the socialities of housewives, maids, children, women in the market, sanitation workers, interaction around small shops and bakeries, little eating joints, auto drivers, public dot, 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 countless everyday things and processes around us, which is a collage of experiences which occur in rural and urban areas, inside and house, outside houses, within and without institutions. It, most important point that we begin with, why we begin with this point is because of this. It captures the way by which the first experiences of the social are experienced and articulated. We learn about the idea of the social. We learn about the experience of the social, not through our engagement with a well set out social order and social structures, but through our engagement in our everyday social. Many of the modes of understanding the social begin to influence the idea of the social in the larger structural sense. Thus, these experiences of the social influence how the sense of the social gets formed in categories such as 
nation, religion, caste, and gender, and so on. So these experiences form an awareness of the experiences of the social. It influences the way individuals interact with the impersonal or the institutional social. So how does one act? I think we're, we're missing your sound. Suppose comes from the everyday practices of the social within the family, with friends and in schools. Even as children, we are completely immersed in narratives of the past time and history. We begin to form ideas, not just ideas of identity or, uh, we be, uh, you know, uh, or our place within the society, but also vague ideas of the notion of history in this everyday socialization. But how do these experiences of what we could call as everyday history relate to the ontological questions about history? Let me start with the example of the social. What is the ontology of the social? Is there even something called the social? In a radical departure from abstract conceptualization of the social, we draw upon the empirical experiences in the Indian context to make the argument that the social is sensorially accessed or at least thought to be sensory accessible. So again, I, I, I give you these examples and a quote from the book. So the lived experience of the social is made up of sensations which we perceive to stand for the social. So instead of asking what kind of an entity the social is, you ask by the asking how the social is perceived, a point which has a very direct analogy with uh, the past. Instead of asking what kind of an entity the past is, we begin by asking how my causal engagement and my perception of the past uh, is happens. The social. Uh, odd in the way we formulate it but if we give this example and give you one i just talk about one example of uh, sense uh, smell and touch to illustrate how we set up this argument first there is a sense of seeing touching smelling tasting and hearing the social so consider the many different ways in which our sense of smell continuously refers to the social we define communities by constantly using our sensory capacity of smell in the Indian context, the examples are numerous, uncountable, and endemic to the way we understand communities. India is not just a land of thousand mutinies or a million gods. It's also a land of million smells. The social wafts into presence and travels on the back of many different smells that pervade the social domain. The immersion of the social in smells actually Professor, I think we've I think we've lost your audio again. Oils like mustard oil and coconut oil smells, perfumes like uh, itar or attar used to are all used to refer to the social. Also, as we point out, the smell of garbage is a very important perceptual indicator of a different social. So the scavenging social is defined by the smell of sewage and garbage. That, that there are very deep engagement and interactions with these kinds of smells and uh, other, um, uh, you know, other uh, sensory experiences. For example, the pollution that arises from touch is also relevant for smell. Thus, it was that smelling corpses, for example, would cause ritual pollution for Brahmins as much as touch did. So smell assumes its significance only in the conditions of the cultural asymmetries. We know many examples in India, for example, Gujarati owners of houses in Mumbai are notoriously famous for not giving their houses for rent to non-vegetarians. And there are many such examples in South India. Um, and, and there are also examples of the Bengali upper caste being denied houses for rent on the ground that they eat fish. A dominant reason is that the smell associated with cooking fish or meat, as well as complex, it also has very complex ontological beliefs about smells, such as the belief that the smells become part of the walls of the house and cannot be removed. Through such processes, groups become spatial socials, where people who are associated with particular smells will not be allowed to stay. 
smell gets ghettoized and spatialized much before people are. Smells associated with cuisines begin to define the nature of the community. That uh, there are many indications of the nature of smell and the concomitant experience of the everyday social. Then um, with the social is experienced through this, then the nature of this sensation will also influence the nature of the social. And very interestingly, uh, as an anthropologist McHugh points out, that the nature of smell becomes associated with qualities such as moral and aesthetic qualities in these many traditions, uh, you know, which write about these in uh, Asian, uh, in, in Asian philosophical and cultural traditions. For example, McHugh points out that, quote, suffering, impermanence, permanence, diseases, poverty, foul food, etc., and um, or tend to smell quite bad. So the, these concepts smell bad, suffering smells bad, impermanence does, smells bad, poverty smells bad. And given the dominance of the notion of karma in these traditions, it's not perhaps not a surprise to know that uh, in McHugh's words, uh, quote, one's smell indicates one's karmic past and innate nature. So it has a moral quality which becomes, um, you know, which we discuss in a very, um, you know, in, a, in an example of uh, smell in public spaces, smell associated of, of the labor, the smell of sweat. And um, so, the, so what you would say very quickly to conclude this point is that such a metaphysical position about smell informs the understanding of smell in the everyday social world. It's no longer olfactory smell, but a social smell, which has nothing to do with olfactory sense. In fact, one from these examples, you could argue that smell becomes a vehicle for encoding, sustaining, and transmitting notions of the social. For example, certain groups traditionally associated with scavenging sometimes are treated as if they continue to carry that smell, even when they are well-to-do citizens doing various other jobs. One could claim that they carry the smell as part of the stereotyping and the attempted humiliation. So. They are, when people use smell as a category to categorize uh, communities, they are in essence saying that the group comes into being as a group because of social smell associated with that sociality. And touch is another way to perceive the social and is an important way by which the social is experienced by us. The sociality of caste is primarily through the sensation and repulsion of what we call as social touch. When the people of the same caste touch each other, there's a different sense of touch, which may be love and care. But when the upper caste touches the lower caste, what is the quality of this touch? There are many illustrations of touch and untouch that go to form the experience and narrative of the social. So notions of untouch range from not touching some human beings to not touching your museum pieces. So we have actually discussed this um, much more extensively on the phenomenology and the archaeology of touch. Um, in our earlier book on the cracked mirror, but you could see the, what we are trying to do here is to say that the, the collective experience in many Indian situations has a lot to do with the nature of touch, which has because and these things are not about touch as a kind of a, a physical experience of a particular kind or something to do with some sensory organs all kinds of cultural practices and the formulation of conceptual world which makes sense of these practices, including questions of what is social and what is time and what is the past, are influenced by these views on simple things like smell and touch. So, um, and of course it is taken up um, most uh, powerfully and perhaps uh, most egregiously in the context of untouchability, where you have a completely different metaphysics of the very idea of touch and not touching somebody else. So um, this, uh, so what I'm trying to say is, it is not possible to understand these and many other social phenomena only in terms of the actions, motivation, and desires of individuals. The phenomenon of social touch is based on an ontology of touch. And here is where a phenomenal, the phenomenon of the, the past, the ontology of the past, is very closely linked to what I'm saying, going to say here. In the everyday social, this occurs in so many ways. It's exemplified in Hindu religious practices and syncretically in other religious practices too. This has to do with the practices and rituals around touching and the constant engagement with questions of touching uh, gods, uh, time as a god, of course, which is a very different way of looking at this whole thing. Professor, I think your sound, we've, we've lost it again. Yeah, sorry. Um, 
Yeah, can you hear me now? Yes, perfectly. Yeah, Thank yeah. You. Sorry, uh, and I'm, I'm coming to the end of this. Just a couple of more minutes. Um, so, yeah. So, social touch is not the touch of one individual on another, not the touch of one hand on another. It's the touch of the social on us and our touch on the social. Okay. Now, um, so we can uh, let me try and um, show directly a, a kind of a link to the question about. Uh, the past and uh, time and hopefully with this very brief uh, introduction to the kind of ideas of the uh, of the experience of the uh, social and the abstractions of the social uh, let's see how this extends into the the first arguments that i began with so the basic argument is this history is an integral part of the everyday social as we began with and that as we as i gave examples that is the way we formulate a sense of history um, with I, here again, I want to make, uh, clarify again that I'm not getting into the dispute about which kind of history is an academic parts of history or the, the many different uh, branches of history and so on. History, as I explained earlier, in what sense I was using the term. So history is an integral part of the everyday social and the ideas of history in the everyday practices also embody social characteristics of the everyday social. For example, in the book, we discuss four important characteristics. The uh, very important, the first one is about Venus. What is it about this nature of the social that produces a question of identities, of group identities, a notion of saying belongingness. And if you don't want to use terms around identity, the notion of belongingness to something, that notion of Venus. Uh, uh, and then the second point is about authority, which is produced through this um, uh, this invisible social and the third part which is very important to the everyday social is a production of time its own its own examples of time its own uh, ontologies and characteristics of time and that's another chapter we talk about in that example and then finally of course in ethics um, of social which becomes a question of ethics of historicizing thus historical consciousness goes hand in hand with the consciousness of the social and when the social is seen to be sensorially accessible so is history thus our history is firstly a creation of the social group which is bound together through an articulation of the collective history it's a history that's discovered and produced constantly historical consciousness is a necessary requirement for the production of social consciousness and the historical which is immersed in an ontology of the past and time is specialized into the everyday social in so doing it enables the historical to be sensorially accessible in the way the social becomes accessible through the sense of um, through the senses as described above. and um, i'll just stop here um, so that you will have some time for a few questions uh, but the final part of this to conclude the much larger argument is to show how the hyper reality of the past is actually produced Um, we, Professor, we've just lost the very end of your lecture. Thank you so much for allowing me to share these ideas with you. Um.